Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well, here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. It's crucial for... Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Evan and D-Days will ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. Today is January 22nd, 2023. This is episode 43, coming at you. We have Evan McDonald from the Book of Evan co-hosting. And uh, some featured news articles include Puerto Rico temple dedication, including some advanced temple endowment analysis. Rate your local LDS chapel. Uh, the Enoch shooting aftermath, and how the church is providing higher education opportunities to members. If you want to get in touch with us, we're at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's www.mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send us an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. Uh, welcome to the Mormon News Roundup, Evan. Hey, glad to be here. It's tremendous to have you on. Now, I understand you live in Argentina. How'd you end up there? Yeah, so actually five years ago this month, we moved uh the whole family. So my wife and four kids, four daughters. Um, the youngest was seven months at the time. She's now five years and seven months. Um, so we've been here for five years. We thought we'd be here for a year. Uh, it was kind of like basically an attempt to jumpstart our lives a little bit, not jumpstart, but kind of reset things, reset our thinking, teach the, the have the whole family learn Spanish. And um, yeah, so we just never, we just haven't left. And at this point, it's kind of hard to imagine ever leaving, but who knows? Hey, you're never going to leave now that Argentina won the World Cup, right? That was an amazing, you know, we were here four years ago for the World Cup. Argentina didn't do really well, but it was still very much a peak experience. But to be here when the World Cup, when they won the World Cup was life-changing. Amazing, amazing experience. Sounds like a fantastic adventure. Now, you're very uh, active on Twitter. What's your handle and what is your social media focus? So uh, about a year ago, I started a, a Twitter, kind of that semi-anonymous Twitter account because I needed an outlet and a place to discuss all things Mormonism. And uh, so I created the, the handle, The Book of Evan. And um, I am in a couple other social media places with other names, but this one is really focused on conversations with other people who are talking about Mormonism, as well as me sharing some of my deeper thoughts on the subject. Yeah, speaking of those deeper thoughts, you do a lot of multi-thread uh, tweeting. What has been your most viral uh, thread? You know, I went and uh, I was just thinking about this. I've, I've made a handful of threads on a handful of topics and it's it's interesting. There's those that really resonate with people in the in the ex Mormon community, kind of like the progressive Mormon and, and post Mormon, and then those that really rile up the the active, um, you know, died in the wool members of the church. So um, it kind of depends on on what you're asking. But um, I went. If you go to the Book of Evan, I pinned one to my to my profile there uh, that I think is. Uh, has has garnered a, a little bit of attention um, and had some good uh, resonance. And one of those that comes to mind is is a thread that I did a while, not too long ago, about um, people watching and how since leaving the church, I've realized that I've been more fluid in my relationships with other people and less like gatekeeping the way in which I interact with others and the way that I perceive others. 
And it's something that I never would have guessed about myself since leaving the church. Um, and um, it was interesting because tons of people that responded that are on the outside of the church that have left the church said, you've described my experience perfectly, but anyone who's in the church has, turns out to, they were really offended by it. So it, it really riled up the uh, the bee's nest, the beehive, if you will. And um, I think that's because it is it is challenging to accept the fact that that that's what happens. Is the church is uh, it it causes us to group people into in crowd versus out crowd, and I, I definitely didn't recognize that beforehand. But I've got all kinds of thoughts about that in there. So your your Twitter um your handle it says that uh, you know everyone has to describe themselves on Twitter briefly. It's only a few characters, and. and what it says under the book of Evan is unclenching the fist of certainty. What do you mean by that? You know, I don't remember exactly where I heard that. Uh, but before leaving the church, before really making the decision that I was going to step away, I was reading a handful of kind of Eastern texts and Eastern ideas. And what I was noticing is this idea of, of that clenched fist that like, that tightness of like holding on to, and and for a long time, I'd really been holding on to like, this is my testimony. This is what I believe. These are facts. This is truth. This is objective and really holding on to it. And as soon as I started to let go a little bit, I started to let new things into my life. And I started to find a lot more peace, a lot more inner, a lot more joy and just everything changed for me. And that was beyond all the church history and all the kind of the ugly past of the church and the and the covering up of that past the biggest thing for me was finding a huge amount of peace and a huge amount of joy by uh releasing that kind of dogmatic approach to religion that dogmatic or that binary approach that yes or no black and white approach to life and so that's that's where that comes from this idea of of just kind of relaxing and, and letting life happen around me without trying to be so in control. Right. Hey, is there anything else about your personal life or religious beliefs that you would like to share before we uh, hop into this uh, week's episode? Um, I guess probably the biggest thing that I would just say is um, one of the challenges that I have had in in going through a faith crisis is this idea of binary thinking and uh, that that has made an attempt to stay with me to where I have try to have a black and white approach to, you know, the church is bad, the church is. And one of the biggest things that's helped me is to say the church is not good. The church is not bad. The church just is. And, and really trying, and I see this a lot in other people who, who maybe feel angry or feel like they've been deceived as they step away from Mormonism. There is a tendency to have a very binary thinking and to basically stay clenched but in your determination that this is all wrong instead of this is all true. And so that's one thing that I'm really trying to cultivate in myself. Um, and so you might hear me in our conversation today. Maybe I get a little riled up, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to, to really be open and give space to, to the fact that this is a part of the human experience and the human experience is amazing. Well, in order to make sure that you don't get too riled up, Evan, I understand that you do have the Mormon News Roundup Choke of the Week, and that should help you stay, um, that should help you stay centered, right? I, yeah, I do have the joke of the week. So this is a, a joke I think I heard in a sacrament meeting talk years ago, and I don't know why this has never left my brain. So <laughs> there's a, a, 
a, a dad is waking his kids up to get ready for church. He kind of goes into each of their rooms and wakes wakes them all up. And the um, one of his kids, you know, 15 year old son just kind of rolls over and groans. And he's like, come on, we got to go. You got to get up, get ready for church. And he's trying, he's prodding, he's poking and nothing. There's no response whatsoever. And finally, in frustration, he says, son, it's time to get up. Where's your faith? And the sun rolls over, opens his eyes a little squint, and he says, "It's white behind my nose. My, my faith is white behind my nose." <laughs> very nice, very nice. Okay, I have no idea what that could have been a part of, as far as on topic of a of a talk, but I heard it in a sacrament meeting talk. So. Very nice, very nice. Now we are uploading uh, for you listeners out there. We're glad you're here. We're uploading a video portion of this. Uh, we're recording this in a podcast form, but if you come on over to uh, Patreon, search for Mormon News Roundup, you'll be able to see the video portion of it and see your humble hosts here. So let's hop into the news here. The first uh, article that we want to discuss is this is the aftermath of the horrible Enix shooting uh, rampage, which took place with Michael Haight. And this is an article that we're uh, we're going to post all of these articles into our show notes. It was posted on January 17th, 2023, and it was in ABC.com, the Southern affiliate. And it turns out that Michael Haight, um, his daughters told interviewers that the mass murderer, Michael Haight, who was a faithful member of the church, had assaulted her more than once over the course of three years, and that uh, the subject, uh, he was the subject of the murder-suicide, and that he was the subject of a 2020 child sexual assault investigation. Well, what did you think about this uh, article that uh, came out here, Evan? You know, it's 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 absolutely sad and it, it's 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 terrible the the fact that this happened obviously is is not really news that that this murder happened because we it happened weeks ago but as time goes on we're learning that if someone had listened to these kids if someone had listened to um his estranged wife that something could have been done something could have been done to prevent him from doing it i just you see a lot of people really trying to build up his character, not just refuting any um, character assassinations, which uh, is an ironic term to use for someone who um, has gone on a killing spree. Um, but this to see that not only are people in his corner and coming to his defense and trying to defend his character, but also that this was, this is not this really was not a surprise yeah there was a there was a lot of warning signs that were there as you mentioned and the spectrum which uh published his uh, obituary which is the largest paper in southern utah I used to live down there in saint george it's the largest paper there it finally pulled his uh, really glowing obituary with his obituary that was put by his uh grandparents and, and parents and family talked about how he magnified his calling and he was a great insurance salesman it just glossed over the fact that he was um a, repre a reprehensible evil man. And um, this Deseret News has uh, responded to this obituary polling. And and what did the Deseret News, why do you think that they came out and responded to an obituary getting pulled from the spectrum about Michael Hay? You know, as this has unfolded over the last few weeks, it seems to me that people in the Mormon sphere uh, on all sides of the the, the the Mormon sphere have had um, reactions to this and it's riled up a lot of people. A lot of people are really upset. Every, I think everyone is upset that this happened, but a lot, you know, there's been talks, talk about politics and gun control and people really defending things. And, and it's, it's, 
it's frankly pretty disgusting some of the responses of people who are active members of the church. And I think those who are maybe on the progressive side of the members of the church are sitting here just head in their hands wondering, how is this possible that my community, that anyone in my community is responding this way? They may have an increased desire to disassociate with the church and step away from the church. And so I think the church sees that. And it's interesting because the church could come out and just make it very clear. Look, murder's bad. And if someone does that, we're going to, we're not going to gloss over it. We're not going to put in their obituary that if they murder all their children, that they loved their children and spent quality time with each one of them, which is what the obituary says. And then we're not going to defend the people who put up that obituary, right? We're not going to come to their defense. Um, So the church isn't going to do that. The church doesn't take stands like that, which I don't know why they don't, but they don't. So I uh, have a suspicion that essentially they're using Deseret News to run something that is sympathetic with the folks who are disgusted by this response. And um, and so this story kind of runs cover for the church. Um, the thing that's really fascinating was really fascinating to me about this article is that in the comments, essentially the more conservative, and I don't want to over um, segment people or, or divide who define who people are, but I'm just going to for shorthand say you have the conservative folks who are saying, you know, this, how can you blame them? It's mental health. It's, you know, and, and, and let's, let's not, you know, let's just be nice to this poor guy, this poor victim of life. And then the people who are saying this is a disgusting response to this tragedy, they're essentially duking it out. So you have people in the comments that represent that, that kind of disgusting view, if I can be so bold. Um, in the comments, coming out in droves, responding and and supporting the family and, and their response to this tragedy. So I, now, I don't I mean, know. I, I really don't. This I, I haven't been able to wrap my head around the events. I haven't been able to uh, to bring myself to to understand or sympathize with uh, the family that is left behind and their behaviors. I just I really don't have. I don't have any conclusions that that bring me any kind of closure on this issue. I'm I'm honestly kind of trying to distance myself from it because I don't know I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to react. Yeah, I mean the shoes just keep dropping on this one. It, uh, it unbelievably somehow every week it seems to get worse. I, it, yeah. it seems impossible that a story like this could get worse, and yet every single week we learn more things that somehow make it worse. Yeah. So we're um we're at at News Mormon on Twitter. If you want to come over and uh and uh, give us your thoughts about uh, the church in particular, the Deseret News responding to the polled obituary, please drop us a comment. Please drop us a like over on Twitter. We're at at News Mormon. Now our next article here is about the church providing higher education opportunities to members worldwide. And what's going on with that article, Evan? So this is an interesting thing. It, it from my understanding is that there was a a summit or a conference or something gathering of religious higher education institutions from around the world. So not just the Mormon church, not just the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't mean to offend anyone there. Um, So you have the leaders of the church there. You have leaders from Notre Dame. You have leaders from other religious universities around the country. And I don't know if it included worldwide um, education institutions, but regardless, it's the church interacting and interfacing with outside the church or organizations and institutions outside the church. Church does this a lot. And I think one reason that they do it is to um, 
to demonstrate what good things they're doing. It's a press opportunity. It's an opportunity to kind of brag. And um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. If you've got it, flaunt it. And they want to flaunt the fact that they are doing a lot for uh, education, uh, for higher education uh, in there in the Mormon sphere, in the United States sphere, and around the world. And um, the one problem I do have, though, is this, uh, I don't feel like they're completely honest, and I don't think that they have quite the feather in their cap that they think they, that they profess to have. Yeah, um, this was an American uh, Council on Education, so it was definitely American. We had the CES Commissioner, the Church of CES Commissioner, who um, uh, Elder uh, Gilbert, who was there. We also had the presence of BYU-Idaho, BYU-Provo, I think BYU-Hawaii as well. This was an article that is on the Church News, 14 January 2023 by Tad Welch. And really, a lot of the focus of this particular conference was BYU and the Church touting the pathway worldwide, which now has 60,000 students in 180 countries. So there's almost as many students in the BYU campus as the three BYU campuses, BYU maybe has 30,000, Idaho 30,000, and I'm not sure about Hawaii, maybe 10,000, and Ensign College maybe five. There's almost about as equal amount of people taking through the Pathways program as there are physical students. And the article in particular talks about how the church is spending about a billion dollars a year to support higher education. And that would be like, you know, the church's operating budget is probably around $6 billion, according to the Ensign Peak Leagues. So the church is spending about 60% of its church budget on higher education. Now, I understand, Evan, that once upon a time, you were a BYU-Idaho instructor. Um, were you online or? Yeah, so I was an adjunct online, actually, while I lived yeah. here in, in Argentina, um, and I taught design courses. That's what my degree is in. That's the work that I do. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was interesting. We had a couple people in the class that were in Russia or other places around the world. Some were BYU-Idaho students, and some of them were Pathways students. So it was kind of a mix. Yeah, I also uh, taught at BYU for an, uh, quite a long time, including online uh, through the Department of Independent Study. And I even designed a course or two as well. So I guess we're well positioned to be able to offer some commentary sure. on this uh, particular article. How do you feel about the quality of the Pathways program? You know, I think the biggest source of my familiarity with this program is not so much my experience working as an instructor, I did that for one semester um, and decided that it, it really wasn't something that I could give my energy to anymore. But living here in Argentina, I've known multiple people that are either current participants or that were participants in the program. And um, I have a couple criticisms of the program um, just based on my experience with it. Uh, the biggest thing that I would say is that, so when I first came here to Argentina, I was active in the church. I participated. I even served in a bishopric here in Argentina. And um, my wife and I taught English Connect. So in order to participate in Pathways, you have to speak English. That, for lots of reasons, I think is a big problem. So essentially, the church is only teaching this program in English. So in order to qualify to participate in Pathways, you have to pass. It's either two or three courses of English that are done generally for free at the ward building. Um, but they're generally, it's a calling, it's an unpaid calling. Uh, and it's taught by um, either a gringo like me or someone who speaks English. But it's once a week, you're really not learning English in this environment. Um, and then once you speak good enough English, you can participate in Pathways. 
Um, and all the classes are done in English. This is kind of a problem because that makes this out of reach for a lot of people. The other thing it, that I've noticed is that uh, having a degree from BYU-Idaho or BYU-Provo or BYU-Hawaii, for someone here in Argentina, that's a big deal. People want that. They know that any kind of university in the United States having a degree is going to help them a lot with their job prospects here. I haven't personally seen from the people that I know that have participated in this program, I haven't seen a big impact of this program in because no one here knows what it is. They don't understand pathways. This is different. This is, you didn't, wait, did you go to the United States? No. Okay. Do you speak English? Well, sort of. It was all in English. Yeah. But so there's all these kind of problems with it. Um, I will say among the good things, it is really affordable. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's almost no cost. I, it's really low cost and it's rel relative to the economy of each place. So it's not like they just say, you know, it's $20 per class. It depends on where you, where you live. And, and I probably could have called up one of my friends and asked what they're paying, but um, it's, it's very, very low cost. But I yeah, don't know. In, in, in the cheapest countries, it's only like $5 per credit, which is extraordinarily low. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's completely affordable for just about anyone here. Um, so, now, yeah. I do have a question. Are you familiar with the accreditation of pathways? That was one question that the article didn't get into. And it's not something because accreditation, at least in the United States, is a big deal, probably not as big, a big of a deal in Argentina. But do you know anything about the accreditation? I don't. I don't know. Um, I imagine, and this is all speculation, I imagine that the process of getting the pathways program accredited in different countries around the world is going to be really complicated. But then again, I don't think um, I think that generally if a program is accredited in the United States, that the Argentine government or Argentine institutions would see that and go, OK, that's good enough for for me. So now yeah, in sure. the article, Elder Gilbert, who is the CES, uh, basically the commissioner, he said, quote, the church can't afford to build another BYU in the Philippines. The church can't afford to build another BYU in Ghana. Do you have a reaction to that statement? I benefited directly from tithing funds of members of the church in places like the Philippines and Ghana who paid their tithing. And then a big portion of that tithing went to uh, to subsidize my education at BYU-Idaho. I'm really grateful that I didn't have to pay a ton of money for my education. I had very little debt um, and I didn't have help with my college from, from my parents and family. So, um, or very little help. It was my responsibility. And um, I, I'm really grateful for that. But the, that resource, that education is not accessible to these people in the Philippines and in Ghana and in, and in Argentina. And so in my mind, it makes a lot of sense to build a university in another country, in another part of the world that in Latin America, where you know, the second most spoken language in the church is Spanish because of Mexico and, and, and South America. And so build a university in one of these places. And I don't buy it um, that, that, the, that the church can't afford it because the list of things which the church can't afford to do is a really short list. In fact, there's the list of <laughs> questions that are asked on the Temple Recommend interview is probably a longer list than the list of things which the church can't afford. 
Right. The church um, just recently purchased the $260 million industrial complex in Kent, Washington, for instance, and they're developing a $600 million industrial complex in Phoenix, Arizona. So there, there's a priorities. It, it's not a question of ability. No, it's a question no. of priorities. Exactly. No, and you that, that's perfectly said. I, compl- I couldn't agree more. You know, I and, think and, if, if you want to get kind of halfway, if the church wants to actually put forth an effort to show that higher education practical higher education that can really help people around the world, they need to start offering courses online in the language of the people that are taking those courses. That, if you can't afford to build a building, which I believe that they can, if you can't afford to build the buildings and and hire the people, then start offering classes in a foreign language. They have people to teach these courses um, and they could get people in these countries to teach these courses. They could be employing members of the church, good people, members of the church who have the skills to teach these courses. But I think what it really comes down to is centralized control. And the church really likes to have um, control over what is being taught, over what is happening at their universities. And so having, uh, having it decentralized or further from the sent the seat of power of the in the LDS church in a country like Colombia or Peru or some other place where they could build a university. I, I just don't think they're I think that pushes their boundaries of their of their comfort comfort zone. Absolutely. You know, the church still owns, uh, they used to own many more, but they still own like 15 elementary secondary schools. And, and to my knowledge, all of them are taught in English. That big Hamilton, New Zealand church school, which closed in 2009, which was open for like 50 years, it was taught in English, I'm pretty sure. And when the church did the Indian placement program with the so-called Lamanites, those kids were educated in English. And the church operated like 11 schools during that time. The church also rolled out to the institutes, that's for the college students, they rolled that out to uh, U.S. members only at first. And when the Church College of Hawaii was formed, it wasn't taught in Hawaiian, it was taught in English. And church missionaries, they still teach English overseas today. The church really wants its members to learn English. And it just kind of reminds me of that primary song that, you know, Jesus wants me to learn English to shine for him each day. There's there's an obsession with the English language in the church. Absolutely. And chalk it up to manifest destiny, chalk it up to imperialism, whatever you want to say. It could also be the fact that, you know, from what we've learned from Joseph Smith, the Adamic language is is actually really similar to English. So maybe it's because the Adamic language, we're, tr- we're getting the next best thing, which is obviously English. So maybe that's the reason. I don't know. But I don't understand because we publish things in the Deseret Alphabet. We're fine with the Deseret Alphabet, which nobody ever used and really had made, made no difference whatsoever. But we're not fine in teaching all of these uh, saints in um, yeah. their native languages. Okay. So... Uh, one thing that I want to point out, so I have four kids. They're all younger. I mean, right now between the ages of five and 14, we watch General Conference here in Argentina. And I'll tell you that their brains flipped and went, why is it this way when sitting in a chapel in or sitting in front of a TV here in Argentina, hearing someone speak uh, broken English because they were from Argentina, general authority from Argentina speaking in broken English, and then it's translated into Spanish by someone from not Argentina, so it's a different Spanish because all Spanish countries speak a little different Spanish. I have my kids asking me questions. They have the ability to translate these real time. Why don't they have the Argentine general authority speaking in Spanish and translate it to English for everyone else? Why don't they have the Korean general authority 
speaking in Korean and just have it translated into whatever language it needs to be translated into. I honestly don't understand because they have the technology. I mean, maybe people wouldn't understand it in the conference center, but there is definitely an infatuation with English in the LDS church. And while they do make it available to everyone, it seems to be that the highest form uh, the you know, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom is all going to be in English. And so maybe that's the reason why the church is trying to get us there. But either that or reformed Egyptian, it's definitely one of the two. One of the two. Question. Right. <laughs> now, our next article here is by Jana Reese. She always has a very good take on the church uh, and it's her, the religious news service. It's called Flunking Sainthood. And it's how to stay Mormon after a faith crisis is if staying is what you want. So uh, former LDS Bishop Christian Kimball he published a book here, and that book is called Living on the Inside of the Edge, a survival guide, which is currently number one, the number one new Mormon book release on Amazon. That's definitely on my to-do list to uh, take a look at. He was a bishop as well, uh, just like you were, uh, Evan, for 25 years. And he has a couple of highlights from the book that I would like to get your perspective on. So number one, his suggestion for how to stay Mormon after a faith crisis, if you want, is number one, his suggestion is get rid of magical thinking. What's your reaction to that? I um, actually like magical thinking. I mean, it's a little bit tricky because I don't necessarily believe in a lot of it, but there is something, there are things outside our understanding that are happening. And I think it's okay to do that. And in fact, one of the last books I read while I was still trying to kind of hang on to my belief in the church was uh, the book Revelation by Patrick Q. Mason. And one of my favorite things in his book is he marveled at the magical thinking that we have in the church, that you can have a medical doctor that is trusting in the science of medicine and all these things to help heal people and then goes home. And when his kid wakes up sick in the night, gives a priesthood blessing. So, you know, I think magical thinking, not only is it kind of endearing and one of the things that I personally think is kind of neat about the, about any religion really, but I also think it's kind of hard to throw that out because it's at the core of the church's history. It's at the core of our experience um, I do think we push pretty borderline on superstition. I think getting rid of superstition might be maybe a better way to think about it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, I think you're asking a lot for someone to throw magical thinking out while keeping their faith in the church. Yeah, I agree. Our, his number two suggestion in the book is an adult attitude towards the church. And I find that to be very particular since I imagine that this book was geared for adults anyway. Do adults not have an adult attitude towards the church already? I think maybe what he's, what maybe he's, he's, it's all conjecture here, but maybe what he's trying to say here is uh, be an independent thinker. You have a lot of people in the church and a lot of the expectation of the leaders of the church is to uh, just trust us obey blindly. Um, you know, when you get called in to meet with the stake president or the bishop, if you say, what's this about? They say, well, just come ready to have a conversation. They can't, they can't, they don't treat us like adults a lot of the times. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a good way forward for people. I think it's a, a good thing for people to start to try to do more, but uh, it definitely runs contrary to a lot of how the church operates. You know, I'm yeah, a child you, of God being sung in sacrament meeting, beautiful song, but those are ideas and principles that are, that really foster this idea of dependency and being infantilized and being treated like a child and, and not being trusted the ideas that you have, the revelation that you receive. If it doesn't line up perfectly, 
it's wrong. So, you know, the, the, the buck stops with the adults in the room, which are the quorum of the 12 and the first presidency. And so I think that may be, those, those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the gospel principles books, which is used for adults and you compare it to the lessons that are given even to primary or even nursery, they're incredibly similar. So it's going to be a challenge. Uh, Number three here, he had five, five tips here that uh, highlights that I pulled out from the book here is number three. And you talked about this earlier, Evan, he said, don't engage in binary thinking. But you know, when when I'm listening to the general conference in particular, it seems like binary thinking is really, I don't know if I want to say encouraged, but it seems like that is the, um, the norm for um for church participation is binary thinking but he says hey you need to give that up well i i yeah i've already kind of spoken on this which is my take on binary thinking uh i think we should get rid of it um you know my main thought here is uh if i could just say one thing is that we talk about black and white there's good and bad uh and in the church we have a tendency to omit the gray areas when in reality I don't believe that there are black and white black, you know, absolute zero is theoretical black and white in, in the church or in life and any of our human experiences don't exist. Everything is some shade of gray and we just have to do our, the best we can. I think getting rid of binary thinking, if I wasn't raised in a way where binary thinking was the approach, maybe I would actually still have a way to stay in the church and, and, and maintain, um, a more nuanced approach. So I think this is actually really good advice, but it's it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I'll just say one thing about it. If you think about the Book of Mormon in particular, there are only binaries in the Book of Mormon. Everyone is either 100% good or 100% bad. There's really no nuanced people. And so that makes, if your foundational book is extremely binary, it's going to be hard to reject that if you're trying to stay in the church. Now, the number fourth is his suggestion here. Well, and, from, and also uh, the founder himself is pretty binary. He was either really good or really bad. I won't spoil it for you, but anyway. Right, right. The number fourth uh, recommendation from uh, Christian Kimball is uh, stay without stay in the church, but without a temple recommend. So he's encouraging the idea of more so-called Jack Mormons. I honestly think that this needs to happen. There is not a lot of cultural acceptance within the church for those who aren't binary. Right. This is an example of that that problem we just talked about. I think that uh, one of the things that a lot of other religions have is the fact that you can be, you know, if uh, if you're a Catholic, for example, grandma goes to mass every day and you can respect that. And grandma still loves you, even though you only go on Christmas and Easter. And there's not uh, there's not I mean, I'm sure there is shunning in other religions and whatnot, but there's not a place in the church for a lot of respect and a lot of dignity for those who want to say I'm culturally Mormon. I participate in some of the ceremonies. I participate in some of the traditions, but I don't take it literally. And so I think this would be a really good thing if this could could become uh, an acceptable way to be in the church. I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think I don't think it's treated with dignity in any respect in uh, in the church. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that someone without a temple recommend is a second-class citizen in the church, but they're certainly not a full-fledged uh, participating member. I would just put it that way. Now, well, the, the effort, fit, yeah. Go the ahead, effort is constantly get them there. So if you don't have a temple recommend, it's you're it's because you're not worthy. You're not ready for it. You're not in a place in a position where you're supposed to be. So the covenant path, right? That idea is constantly pushing people. If you aren't 
in the place where you are paying your tithing, where you have a recommend, we got to get you there. Perspective elders, right? That's a big area of focus for elders quorums around the church is, is who are the people who have the potential to be temple recommend holders? And if you don't have, if you're not there, you're a project for the church. You get discussed in ward council and PEC and all these meetings. And a lot of effort is trying to get you there. So there's not a lot of um, acceptance of the fact that people are not temple recommend holders. So, but I, right. I, I do. And generally, temple recommend holders, well, or, or almost always temple recommend holders, will not hold the highest positions in the church, the highest callings, the most coveted positions. In fact, a lot of times they won't hold any calling whatsoever. Right. And, and that yeah. makes it so that you're really not, uh, I don't know, you're not part of the team necessarily. It's kind of right. like you're red, you're red shirting on the football team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Football. When Absolutely. I say football, I mean real football, Evan, by the way. Just, just want to point Okay, we're talking. I, I don't know what real football means because <laughs> okay. I get that. From everyone, everywhere. So yeah, okay. but I got you. Now the his fi- yeah, final uh, tip for uh, staying for how to survive a Mormon faith crisis is number five: deal with the bishop and priesthood leaders like an adult. And he seems to have a very adult. He seems to be pushing that everything needs to be done on an adult way. Uh, do do adults not already treat with the bishop and and, and priesthood leaders like adults? Um. I, I don't know. I, I think uh, I think there is this hierarchy between the priesthood leadership and the lowly members of the church. Um, and it happens in a lot of just like the cultural interactions. And it's 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 kind of interesting to see when a new bishop gets called, how everyone kind of snaps into line with, OK, you are now the adult and I'm I'm still the child. I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast from uh, with uh, Kate Kelly a little while ago, and she talked about how, um, you know, in the last uh, couple of years when she was in the church that she would just talk to her bishop and her stake president and she would just call them by their first name in order to, I don't know, treat them like an adult, not necessarily give them the title that uh, people have so that you're more equalizing the playing field. Well, that that actually, that aligns with some of the things I I can't think of the reference right now, but, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about you know, don't make yourselves hierarchical. This is a flat organization. We're brother, like we are people. We're all on the same playing field. We're all on the same level. Don't start elevating each other to different hierarchies. And so in a lot of ways, this idea that, you know, if, and, and I was taught if a deacon's quorum president, because he holds keys, you should constantly refer to him as president. Um, even though it's a 12 year old, um, I, I'm all for respecting kids and treating them as full fledged human beings because they are, but this idea of elevating and de-elevating people based on their calling and their responsibility and their priesthood and their status. I think, uh, I think the, the, the figurehead of the church, the, uh, Jesus Christ himself actually told us not to do that. So. Yeah, I was listening to another. This this podcast, the Mormon News Roundup, is sponsored by Signature Books, so we want to give a shout out to them. But there is an official Signature Books podcast, and this week it was with uh, Michael Hicks, um, who I'm very familiar with. My father actually baptized him, but he talked about in the podcast how he was once excommunicated and then came back to the church, became a BYU professor, is a very faithful individual, even though he was a pot smoking hippie, and um, he said basically uh, about the church. Well, what do you what do you, what do you expect? It's a church. So his expectations, I think, are a bit lower than what a lot of members have, which is like basically almost like an infallibility or a perfection and things like that. If you can jettison those ideas um, that Michael Hicks talked about and that uh, Christian Kimball talked about, 
I think that you can definitely stay in the church. It's going to be a significant challenge because as we've discussed, it runs contrary to a lot of what the messaging is. Any last thoughts on this uh, article, Evan? I just, I just wish the church would acknowledge that it's a church. The leaders of the church don't acknowledge it. They call it the kingdom of God on the earth. They refute any possible, um, uh, any instance of fallibility. It is a church. What do you expect? It's a church. I think the church should be apologizing for the mistakes that they've made, of which they've made many. What do you expect? It's a church. I think that's that should be the new motto uh, for the church. Personally. <laughs> very nice, very nice. I, I think you'd like that podcast. I enjoyed it as well. I, I took oh, a classes from uh, I took a classes from Michael Hicks when I was a BYU student. Um, so um, you know, and my father, like I said, baptized him. So it was a near and dear uh, podcast. Uh, I think it's great for those listeners out there. And of course, signature books. We're grateful to them. Now, a couple last articles here. We have our next article here, which is Marie Osmond is back in the news here, and maybe not for the best of reasons here, Evan. This was published on January 18, twenty twenty three, on ComicSans.com, and the title of the article is Marie Osmond defends her decision not to leave her seven children any inheritance. And the music legend says that all inheritance does is breed laziness and entitlement. And she said, quote, I'm not leaving any money to my children. Congratulations, kids. My husband and I decided that, end quote. Um, how do you feel about Marie Osmond and her plans for her um, considerable wealth? I don't, I don't know who this is. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's a silly thing. I think it's, who knows if it's Mormonism, if it's conservatism, if it's people who are, you know, entitlements and they're speaking out against that. I, you know, who knows? I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's kind of silly. I think it's up to her. I hope she, I hope she has a good rest of her life. If she wants to spend all her money, that's fine. If she's going to bequeath, bequest, what's the word? Bequest all of her inheritance to the church. I think that's kind of interesting. Who knows? I don't think that was defined in there who she's going to give the money to, which charities. Um, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't have much of a, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that the article doesn't discuss what she's actually going to do with all of that money. So it doesn't say that she's going to give it away to charity. It doesn't say, which makes me presume that I am thinking that she is planning. Therefore I'm leaving it to the church through the LDS philanthropies program. Now, I run another channel on YouTube called Mormon Movie Reviews, and I did a review of Journey to Become, which was a movie released by the LDS Philanthropies Department in 2013, which discusses the benefits of disinheriting children if they do not live up to certain principles. Now, I'm, I don't know if uh, Maria and uh, Donnie's Osmonds, if their children are active or whatever, but I'm just wondering, I wonder if she's planning on leaving it all to the church. That's that's just what I'm wondering. Yeah, it, it's, it, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, yeah. Who knows how soon it will be till we know. <laughs> And, and all, I mean, I understand not leaving. Look, okay, she's fabulously wealthy. I don't know, probably an eight figure, uh, maybe maybe even more total net worth. Um, I understand not leaving all of it to the kids so that, I, you know, if you just drop, I don't know, a million dollars on a kid or, or somebody who's younger or whatever, that could be harmful. That, then maybe they're not, they're not prepared for that. But what about leaving some? What about leaving just enough so that they're comfortable? I mean, they were also sacrificing while you were away from home. I just... I, I'm struggling with this one. It does remind me, though, that I guess it, it appears that Donnie is a little bit rock and roll, but I guess Marie's just a little bit stingy. You know? <laughs> uh, I think your analysis is spot on there. Now, uh, that does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup question of the week. If you come on over to Anchor, you can interact with us on the question of the week. And the question is, how do you feel about Marie Osmond's decisions not to leave her seven children any inheritance? If you come on over to Anchor, you can interact with us on our question of the week. Now, our next uh, uh, article here, which is, I don't know how long this has been around, but the church has released guidance about 
how to review your local church, specifically on Google. It says to share the gospel by posting an online review of your local chapel on Google Maps or Yelp or whatever else it is. Now, I don't know when this was released, but it is on the church's uh, main webpage. And I went and looked at my local chapel, and Evan, I have to tell you, my local chapel is actually kind of low. It's only 4.7, whereas most chapels are in the 4.9 range. Yeah, you would think the only true church, you'd have like five and a half stars for everything. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm honestly surprised that mine is so low, 4.7. But I did read one review of my local chapel, which I think is kind of amusing. And someone rated it with three stars, which was one of the worst reviews. But they said in the review, these are very nice people, but I'm convinced it's a Ponzi scheme. Now, I'm just wondering if something's a Ponzi scheme, how does that deserve three stars? Something's a Ponzi scheme? Should that be a big warning and should be a one star? I guess if it's a nice Ponzi yeah. scheme, it's three stars. I think you know warn warn your neighbors if if it's a Ponzi scheme and 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 three's three's pretty generous. You know, I went and looked at all the all the reviews in in my area here in Argentina. To, one thing that I noticed is just about everything was done uh, about three or four years ago. They all are kind of right. flurried around the same date. So I'm thinking the local authorities, the general authorities for this area, probably ran this campaign a couple of years ago, um, and. Uh, yeah, almost all of them are high reviews. I, I filtered by the lowest reviews first to read those. And it was interesting. A lot of people would put one star and then write a rave review. So I think some people just don't know how to how ratings work. So I, I don't know. It could just be an error on the three stars Ponzi scheme review that you saw. That could be. You know, the temples are also rated, which I found very mm -hmm. interesting. And I do wonder what is the highest and lowest rated temple. And my gut feeling was that the Provo Temple was actually a lowest rated. And it's only 4.6, for, which for temples is extraordinarily low. You yeah. know, and the church doesn't respond to any of these ratings. You know, a lot of businesses or corporations, they take control of their Google ratings. They claim them and they respond to them. The church does not do so. But I just found this to be a very interesting exercise. Well, we are a peculiar people. So, yeah. Now, our next quick, this is going to be a quick article here. Uh, Evan, you tweeted out this week about how Mormon.org redirects to the church's main webpage and also the LDS.org uh, also redirects to churchofjesuschrist.org. And we also noticed that there's another redirect. And what was that? <laughs> Uh, victoryforsatan.org takes you straight to churchofjesuschrist.org. So um, I generally <laughs> use lds.org anytime that I want to fast track. But I think I'm going to start using this one to get me there, victoryforsatan.org. Wow, that's surprising. And I thought that, well, the church must have bought that domain, but is that the case? Well, it, it's possible, but I think it's kind of unlikely. Um, I, I, although it really is possible. I went and looked at the who is which is a database of you can look up to see who owns uh, a domain. And a lot of times you can get contact info to reach out to the, the owner of a domain and whatnot. Um, everything's redacted. So either some, either the church did it and didn't want anyone to, anyone to know, or this is a really great um, $10 a year prank. <laughs> Because obviously, for those who are not in the know, the using the term Mormon, calling it the Mormon Church or not calling the church by its full name, that is a victory, ma a major victory for Satan. That's why yeah. someone, either the church or, or, or someone else, has bought that domain and redirected it to the church themselves. Because oh, I just find that to be very amusing. I stumbled upon yeah. that myself yeah. this week, which I think is really funny. That's pretty funny. Now, our, 
Our next article here is by uh, Jacinda Arden. The prime minister of New Zealand says that she, she is stepping down. Um, it's a little bit early. She's saying that she has no more uh, energy in the tank. This was released on the BBC just two days ago by uh, Shamaya Khalil. And so essentially before this time, before she is not going to uh, go for re-election, I think it is uh, absolutely without question that she was the most powerful, politically speaking, ex-Mormon in the world, and maybe the most powerful ex-Mormon even without a qualifier, but she has said that she is going to be stepping back. She's looking forward to spending more time with her family and being there with her daughters when school starts. Uh, how do you feel about this article? Well, I didn't know that she was a, a previously a member of the church, uh, and so until this, I saw some conversation on Twitter about this. Uh one of the things I told my wife, I was like, hey, did you know that uh, the New Zealand PM is is an ex-Mormon? And, and her first reply was, and I should say, first of all, my wife is very proud of her for doing this. And actually, we've had some conversations around the dinner table about how commendable this is to know your limits and to set those limits and then to to stop doing something if it's no longer good for you. So when I told her, she said she responded to my text and said, she's she quit the church. She quit this. She's really great at quitting things that are that aren't good for her. So anyway, yeah. Well, we, we, uh, there. I think there's a precedent. There is an active member of the church who's a president of a country in um, in Africa in a small country. So, uh, but I don't know if I, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. But uh, I, I don't know who the next most powerful ex Mormon on the planet would be. I suppose that you might say that it was my my, my estimation would be either Dustin Lance Black who brought us the Under the Banner of Heaven. Or perhaps John DeLynn. Those would be my guesses. Do you sure. have? Do you? Would you argue with that, or do you have someone else in mind? That that sounds that sounds pretty good to me. Who's the Who's the actor? The really uh, the really attractive actor that all the all the ladies like. He's got a lot of power. Oh, well. uh, yeah, um, okay. you know, I think Ryan Gosling has a lot of power over the hearts of a lot of the ladies because he's a he's a pretty good looking guy and he's an ex Mormon. So he's is, got a lot is that of power. a fact? I I wasn't yeah, aware Ryan of that. Gosling. I wasn't aware of that. I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Okay, so our our featured news article here, and this is our final news article, and our featured news article is coming from the church news, um, uh, the church uh, newsroom itself. And this was released by Mary Richard on 15 January 2023. The title of the article is "A Prophetic Promise Fulfilled: San Juan Puerto Rico Temple Is Dedicated." And um, can you read that first section that uh, talks about yeah, um, what happened? Uh, quote, as you individually grow to become more of the person God wants you to be, you can know for yourself that better days are ahead for the people of Puerto Rico, President Russell M. Nelson said while visiting San Juan in September 2018. One month later, he announced the temple for Puerto Rico in October, uh, in the October 2018 General Conference. So uh, there's a bit of an irony here with the church leaders touring Puerto Rico um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria is that the wealth that the church has to affect the island in meaningful ways. And so after uh, President Nelson visited, what did he do to affect the island? What was his plan? Well, um, apparently it's to build a temple that uh, the card carrying members of the church in Puerto Rico can only they can enter. That's right. Now, this is a, it says in the article that it's a prophetic promise fulfilled. So I'm asking you, Evan, technically speaking, is this a prophecy? You know, I've been thinking about this and this is kind of, you know, the, how, how do I say this? One of the value, one of the chief value propositions of the church, one of the reasons and missionaries say this when they're telling people that don't know about the church, when they're telling them about the church is that we have a prophet 
who speaks with God, who gives us direction that you can only, you only get it here. Proprietary information, proprietary insights only available to the prophet president of the church. But professing and making a prophecy that things are going to get better after things are about as bad as they can get, I don't feel like this is something that only a prophet could say. In fact, I'm sure lots of people made this statement. But, and I doubt any of those people, as they see things improving in a place after a, after a, a massive storm like this, I doubt any of them are saying, claiming that they called it, that they made some sort of amazing prediction. I think if this is the standard with which we're calling prophecies, that the church is having a hard time holding up this value proposition that they have some amazing thing to offer that, uh, that no one else, that no one else can offer. So I, yeah, I don't know. You- when you compare this level of prophecy um, that we saw in this article with last week, last week we also had a prophecy, and that's when uh, Russell M. Nelson was discussing that he said that Wendy was about to talk about Scrabble, and she did indeed talk about Scrabble. So we have uh, him foretelling the future of what his wife would say, and then we have him talking about how things will get better in Puerto Rico after a major disaster. The level of prophecy here is extremely low. The bar really could not be lower when it comes to these two um, so-called prophecies. Now, Hurricane Maria did strike the island in uh, September 2017. It was the strongest worldwide cyclone in the entire year. At least 3,000 people died. There was $100 billion billion in damages. Now, I was called up. I was a member of the uh, Army National Guard at the time. And what do Army National Guard people do during these crises? Well, I was called up to work on Hurricane Maria in the aftermath. I was at the, uh, I was basically at the Pentagon in the control center, and I was tracking troop movements and things like that. It was really a horrible disaster. And I I guess I personally really resonate with this article because I was involved with that. I wasn't there on the ground like President Trump throwing those um, uh, paper towels at people. But I still but I still did help out with it. That's nice um, that you helped. Yeah, Uh, not as much as you weren't throwing paper towels at people. Yeah, I didn't help that much, but I did help out. So, um, you know, the Puerto Rico temple is like 7000 square feet, and that is an exceptionally small temple. And it's probably the second smallest temple only after the Guam temple, which was um, dedicated not that long ago. So it's probably like a $10 million building because it's a church temple construction is probably around $1,100 per square feet. And that's probably about five times as expensive as a chapel. But there's some really cool cultural elements in this in this temple. It's not a mic temple like this standard model that so many of the temples are. We have like 170 operating temples. I think 40 of them or so are the standard model. They use, they incorporated Puerto Rican architecture, cultural elements. I think it's a really cool temple. Now, backing up to last week, someone released a, a, a script about temple utilization. They wrote a program that checks the church's endowment and other appointments online. And we discussed last week in depth how the utilization from temples is very, very low across the church. Now, the San Juan Temple is already the sixth, the church's sixth most used LDS temple, even though it's only been dedicated for a week. Why do you think it is uh, already the sixth most used temple in the church? Well, you know, I think it's uh, it's because it's new. There's a lot of people wanting to go there. Um, and also probably because it doesn't have a huge capacity. So combine those two things, you're going to have pretty high numbers. And also there's temple tourism. People like to go to see yeah. the new temples as well. Yeah, so the ground, yeah. the, ground, the ground was broken way back in May 4th, uh, 2019. So this is a typical, it takes about three to four years for a temple to be announced until it is ground broken. So according to the church, there's 24,000 Latter-day Saints in Puerto Rico. How many of those do you think are actually active? How many people are actually going to be able to utilize this temple? It's going to be less than half. Let's say 10, like 10,000, 10, maybe 12,000 on the positive, really optimistic numbers, maybe safe to say 10. Right. And basically, if you're under the age of 12, you basically cannot use the temple with some small exceptions. But how many of those are over the age of 12, do you suppose? 
six to six to eight, maybe eight thousand, say eight thousand for round numbers. Okay. And then how many of those actually have a temple recommend? Um, I'm gonna say about half. So let's say five to six thousand, somewhere in that range if we're being optimistic. I think optimism is good here. Okay. And then how many of those will actually utilize the temple? Maybe two thirds. I you I mean, as I'm looking at these numbers, I'm gonna guess let's say four thousand people are gonna right. use the temple. So, so twenty four thousand members, ten thousand active, uh maybe only four thousand people have access and the desire to attend. Right. So the hurricane smashed the entire island. We had millions of people who were in dire circumstances. And we therefore are um, the church's response is to announce a temple, which is going to be basically utilized for only about 4000 members. And of course, those members could have used other temples to begin with. So the actual amount of people who did not have the ability to go to Hispaniola, to the nearest temple in um, the Dominican Republic, we're talking about affecting only a couple of extra thousand people. So it's a yeah. very small scope. It's now, small got, slice of the pie, for sure. Yeah, from, from a major disaster. Now, I really want to, we're going to go in depth here a little bit. And I, I was thinking about how many endowments that the church, in, inside of the temples, of course, you, you do the endowments. And I was thinking how many endowments is the church doing a year and how many is going to be done in Puerto Rico? And thanks to the leaks that we have from last week, um, I think that we can get to, um, to answer that question, which I want to discuss kind of in depth here. So a small uh, temple like Puerto Rico can do a maximum of about 2,500 endowments in a month. But it's going to it's gonna peter down to the church average, which is about 20% a month, which would be like 500 endowments per month. Or maybe this temple will do maybe 6,000 endowments per year. Because a small temples like this, they're not open. They're only open about 10 days of the, uh, they're only going to be open about 10 days a month. Now, larger temples like San Diego, they could do a maximum of, say, 12,000 endowments a month. But again, 20% baseline, probably about 2,400 endowments per month or maybe 30,000 endowments per year. So the larger temples, they're going to be open like 20 days a month, and they have like three or four rooms for endowments. Now, what percentage What percentage of the temples do you think, Evan, are large versus small? I don't have any idea, but my hunch is about a 50-50 split. Yeah, may, maybe 60-40 with uh, larger ones, may, some somewhere around there. So if we say 85 small temples, 85 large temples, now we can figure out how many endowments the church is doing per year. Um, right. So based 80, on that, 80, Yeah, based on that. Right. Yeah. If we have 85 small temples, they would do probably about a half a million endowments per year. And with 85 large temples, maybe two and a half million. So we're looking at maybe around three million endowments per year, although I think those numbers might be a little bit low. Okay. Now, sure. there's, there's another... Yeah, there's another way to get to the total endowments per year, which I also want to discuss. And that the church, first of all, it used to release uh, robust uh, reports in the statistical reports in general conference, which used to include tithing donations up until 1959. They used to release that number and a lot of other important church data. Uh, but as soon as the church started doing poorly financially, um, they stopped releasing those. Now, the last, write, yeah. Yeah, the, last, the last temple data that was released by the church in general conference that included the endowment number was back in 1985. And they said that there was 5 million endowments for 6 million members. So it's about a one-to-one -one correspondence ratio. Now, how many members do we have now versus 1985? Are you talking active or? Just total, total. Uh, are we at like 15 million, 16 million? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, the, like the 17. Number. 17, okay. So if we have triple the members now, then we should probably have triple the endowments or there's more temples now. So maybe we could call it say quadruple. So we're, we're looking at probably across the church, maybe 15 to 20 million endowments per year. Okay. Now, if you, if you compare the number of endowments that we're doing, which is probably 15 to 20, I think that's a very solid estimate versus the number of people that are dying. Uh, according to ourworldanddata.org, you have like 70 million people dying a year. So sure. we're not close to even no. the replacement rate. It's a big deficit. Right. So the church would have to ramp up its endowments to at least 100 million to even start chipping away at the people who are dying um, 
you know, who are dying. And it would still take thousands of years to catch it up. Now, I also wanted to think about how many proxy endowments has the church done in the entire dispensation? And of course, there were no proxy endowments in any other dispensation. So this is the only one that had them. Now, in 1985, the church said there was 5 million. In 1970, it was supposed to be 7 million. And I found a church news article that said that in 1988, that the church had performed a cumulative total of 100 million proxy endowments total for the dead since we started doing them in um, 1877. So what, what I'm trying to get to here real quick here is that yeah. my humble endowment estimates, how many endowments have ever been done on this planet? So from 1877 to 1900, maybe a total of 6 million. From 1900 to 1977, maybe a total of like 40 million. From 1977 to 1988, maybe 55 million. And then from 1988 to 2000, maybe 120. And now we're probably doing 15 million endowments per year. So for the last 20 years, call it 300 million. So a generous estimate that I could give would be that there's been about a half a billion names done for endowments, which is, represents a very small percentage of the people on the earth, right? You said half a billion. Half a billion. Half a B total. with a billion. Yes. Half okay. a billion endowments. And, and how many people yeah. have been around on this planet? How many humans have ever lived? Uh, well, I, I don't know the number, but it's it's way, way more than that. At least 100 billion, at least yeah. maybe 120 billion, depends on how, how you Google it. So, you know, I, I hear a common LDS argument that says that we need to do temple work because our ancestors have been waiting so long in the spirit world. But, hey, we've been on this planet for like 200,000 years. So, I mean, depending on it, who you ask, yeah. <laughs> don't ask Russell M. Nelson, but if you ask no. scientists... Yeah. If you ask most scientists, that's how long we've been around. So if Abel, like Cain and Abel, if you think about Abel, it, for instance, if his temple work hadn't been done, well, Abel's, Abel's work has been done because he's in the Bible. Let's say Abel's nephew, who's unnamed in the Bible. He's been waiting for like 199,000 years. I'm sorry, what's a few more years if he's been waiting that long? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. The 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 emphasis on helping the dead is seems to be much... I, there's almost like a fascination with death. We're, we're helping the dead. We're using our, our tithing funds to help the dead more than we are to help the living that are really suffering. Um, and then also just, I don't know, the perspective on life and death that you see at funerals and, and in the wake of the Enoch shootings and all this stuff, it's, it's a little bit troubling to me, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, co compare some dead non-endowed ancestor with that small Puerto Rican child who President Nelson visited who's starving, sick, or doesn't have access to medical care, clean water, sanitation. Her suffering seems particularly acute when compared with a disembodied ancestor who died over 100,000 years ago, right? Yeah, I agree with you there. And, and we're not catching up on the worldwide 67, 70 billion people who die every year. Um, you know, and, and it's, unless something drastic changes, we'll never close the gap between the half a billion endowments completed and the 120 billion humans who have ever lived on this planet, unless something really drastic happens, like the church gaining more members. But, um, you know, that, that's that's the issue is that we, we covered this a couple of months ago. There was a peer reviewed ethnographic study of LDS Church Globe that, that believes that based on the current trajectory, active LDS members, that we're going to peak at six million members, yeah. so we, which is only like maybe one or two million more than what we have now. And, and where is the church growing right now, Evan? Where is the biggest place? Well, not in the United States, not in most no. of the Western world. Is it in Africa, maybe some of the more Absolutely. developing countries? In fact, religion in general is really on the decline in everywhere except Africa. The church isn't alone in that. But if you think about who mans these temples, do you think that the Africa, let's say we build a bunch of temples in Africa close to the African saints. Do you think that the African saints have the ability the, um, to you know, not work, to be retired, to have pensions, to be able to man these temples and really ramp up the number of endowments that we're doing? Do African saints have that ability? No, I don't. I mean, I, you, you would hope so. But 
temples really do depend on uh, people who have benefited from a healthy economy and who are living retirement, who have free time, and who have the health in their older years um, to spend 30, 20 to 40 hours a week volunteering in a temple. Absolutely. You know, and that's why I said the ability to increase the annual endowment, uh, endowments, it's going to be irrevocably limited unless something else changes. But re religiosity, secularization, um, re religiosity is down, secularization is up, and six million is going to be a plateau. You know, and, and we covered this in a couple of months ago. The church is losing, um, the LDS church is losing self-affiliation of people who self-identify as members faster than any other small religion in the United States. Not as fast as some of the larger religions, but among small religions, the church is losing self-affiliation. Um, so let, let's, I just want to continue down this path because there, I do have an end goal to this, all this. Sure, sure, sure. So what, what do you think, Evan, what percent of the 120 billion humans that we've lived on this planet, do we actually know enough about them, their name, their birth or whatever, to be able to actually do their temple work? You know, who can we find? That's really sticky because I don't think the church allows you to do work without special permission if they were born or lived pre-1500. So basically, we're right. just dealing with the last 500 years, uh, 523 years. Um, and also, uh, there's a lot of names we just can't find uh, because we just don't have the information. The other thing that I want to call out is that I've heard multiple times, uh, and and also I just there was something on a on a recent podcast that I'd heard where um, there's a lot of redundancy. So how many names are we taking to the temple? Well, the fact is that a lot of them get done more than once. And uh, I think the last thing that I'd heard was one in three endowments that's performed uh, or proxy ordinances that's done is a duplicate is being done again. So that's a huge amount of, um, of waste, if you will. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of the faithful members would say it's not a waste to go to the temple because all is going to be made right in the end. There's the personal benefits and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of exhaust, if you will. It's a lot of byproduct, yeah. unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doing a, do, redoing somebody's endowment, I mean, that does something for the member, but it doesn't do anything for the dead, even theoretically speaking. Now, I've been told that the temple work in the millennium, that we're going to catch up with all the temple work in the millennium, that we're, we're going to have a thousand, Jesus is going to come again. There'll be a thousand, according to LDS doctrine, there'll be a thousand years of peace. There'll be no war, no famines, no anything like that. We're all going to be literally gathered to a new Jerusalem, I guess, in Jackson County, where there's going to be no more hunger, suffering, plenty of time. You're not going to need a job, I guess, because there's going to be plenty of time for temple work. And even the church's website says the same thing. And that's why I'm wondering, yeah, you know, can't Jesus or his angelic servants just give us the names then? It, it, and that's what I've, I've argued this before. If we save most or all of the proxy temple work for the millennium, this would free up millions or even hundreds of millions of hours in temple labor to alleviate human suffering. And billions now of with, dollars. And billions, billions of dollars, right? Tens of, yeah. tens of billions of dollars. Because yeah. President Nelson himself has announced $5 billion worth of temple work just by himself. Just in building costs. Just in building costs, much less maintenance. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and of course, remember, prior to 1877, there was no proxy work except for a few baptisms for the dead. Nobody basically spent any time on it. And in no other dispensation did anyone do any temple work whatsoever. And none of them felt guilty about it. It's not like we read in Nephi in the Book of Mormon where he says, you know, we don't have a proxy work temple. There's all these ancestors. I feel terrible about it. But in the last days, those people are going to take care of that. You don't read about that in Abraham. They didn't give it a second thought. They didn't care no, one whit they, about it. They had to take care of the, the people and the things in front of them, which, why is that any different now? There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of suffering right in front of us. And we're losing money in the stock market. So, 
yeah, we're losing billions in the stock market. We covered that last week. And, and it's just what, when we're in the millennium, it's going to be a lot easier to do these endowments. So let's say that we have 4 million active LDS, according to that ethnographic study, there'll be 4 million active Latter-day Saint adults in the millennium. Well, if each of those, each of those 4 million active Latter-day Saints needs to cover 120 billion people, that'd be 30,000 endowments for each of those people. So it, even if they do just two endowments per day in the millennium for each of those 4 million active members, we'll get it done in like 50 years. And if they double that amount, we'll get it done in 25 years. So what I'm trying to say is if we do this in the millennium, we're just going to save so much time and effort, the redundancy, the time, all of the things. It's going to be so much better. Yeah, I, we've got a thousand years to get it done. And if it's only going to take, you know, maybe even do it slower than two a day, you can get it done in 100 years pretty easy. That's just yeah. 10%. You could just tithe the millennium and get it all done. And then the rest yeah. of the time can be spent, you know, playing pong, ping pong or whatever you want to play. Angry birds, angry birds. Lots of angry <laughs> birds. Yeah. Well, yeah. not angry Absolutely. birds. Anger is not a not an acceptable emotion. Oh, okay. <laughs> a peaceful birds, peaceful birds. And l- let me ask you, this is what I also thought about this week here, um, is that um, how many total man hours actually go into a single endowment session? Because it's not just a member going in. It's not just an hour and a half session and then you're done. I would estimate that for just that member, it'd be eight hours. You have to find the name. You have to travel. Some of these are long distances. You have to make the appointment online. You have to do the ordinance, buy the clothes, change the clothes, do the laundry. There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, it's a lot. And then you also have the temple workers that are in the endowment room themselves. And then you also have to have the time from the members to earn the money to pay the tithing to go to the temple. That has to be calculated in somehow. Yeah. And. You know, and many members pers- before 1980, the members themselves were the ones really, really building the temples, especially like the, we stopped personally building temples. Like in the Brazil temple, I think was the last temple that members actually built themselves. So you also have to factor in the temple construction, those man hours, you have the temple maintenance, you have the distribution centers where you buy the clothes, you have the laundries in the temples, you have the groundskeepers, you have the handyman maintenance for when the doorknob doesn't work anymore. You have the cafeteria, the actors in the films, you have the people manning the family history center, the IT support for the LDS scheduler, you have the indexing people. Some people are on missions right now doing full-time indexing and that's not to mention you got the gardening yeah exactly don't forget you have the temple presidency the temple office assistants and then some of these temples if you travel from long distance you have to stay at the temple and that's where you have the um what do they call it the patron housing what do they call that yeah it's it's like basically a hostel yeah yeah so you have the patron uh the, the patron housing coordinators the patron housing laundry person you have the housing maintenance the housing nursery workers because if you come from a long distance you bring your children with you because they can't stay home for a couple of days and then you have to have somebody watch those kids in the nursery you have the renovations the washington dc temple was just renovated for four years hundreds of people working on the temple with no endowments taking place okay persons who scout for the temples you have the church headquarters support you have to clean inside the temples the custodial you have the bishop and state president recommends you have bus drivers you have other support how many this is why i'm trying to get to and it's a hard thing to estimate but how many total man hours would one endowment actually cost or, or actually take place what do you think you're you've run these obviously you've run these numbers what, what do you think what do you what do you come up with here i i really think that one endowment session would be about 20 hours worth of total man hours that, that's, that's the lot. best i can give you yeah it's a tremendous a amount of manpower for one endowment session so like i said if we're doing 15 million endowments annually now we can estimate um, the total man hours that the church is uh, actually putting in. So that's 15 million times by 20 hours. That would yield 300 million man hours for endowments annually. Okay, that's not including ceilings, baptisms for the dead, second anointings, nothing. So if we include all temple work combined, including baptisms for the dead and everything, we're talking about half a billion man hours in temple work. Just imagine, Evan, what that could be done if you were to actually put that 
to real people on this earth now, imagine what half a billion man hours could do. When you look at the wealth in time and the wealth in finances, the wealth in resources that's being put to this, this had really been, this had really better be what it claims to be. To be putting this much time, this much expense, this much effort, it had all, it had all really better be true. It all had better really be what it claims to be. Or it could just be done on the millennium. You know, um, even yeah. if it is true, just do it in the millennium. So uh, if you think about the cost of one endowment. If manpower alone is 20 hours for one endowment session, it's 20 hours with everything in there. The church, when it reports in the humanitarian reports, it reports the volunteer hours as donations and part of the humanitarian report. The church in this last report said that the church gave away a billion dollars. That includes um, service hours. The church, when you volunteer for the church, it claims that you are at $21 uh, per hour. That's the rate. So if an endowment session is 20 hours, uh, that would be a 420 uh, church uh, uh, an endowment session. Okay, adding in other costs, including temple maintenance, I, I would say that the cost of a single endowment session would be around $500. That's, and, yeah, that's, wow. So if you, you have 300 million man hours, remember it was 300 million man hours total. Your time's about $21 per hour. That's $126 billion per year in man hour costs. It's a tremendous amount of good. $126 billion worth of man hours is a tremendous force on this planet that could be put to an incredible use to alleviate human suffering on the world. You know? So, um, I don't know. I, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but... Um, uh, these are the best numbers I can give to you. I guess I've just yeah, been thinking a lot. I, I think it would be really helpful um, to see these kind of like listed out and maybe in yeah. like a, an, an, an infographic or a, a yeah. presentation or a PDF or something. Because, but uh, obviously, it's clear to me that you've done you've done the math, you've done the numbers, and some of these are based on estimates. But I, I think the end result can't be too far off. And if it is far off, it's still um, it's still just a massive number. It is. So let me give you some closing thoughts. Let me get some from you too. So the summary on this Puerto Rico temple opening. This week's church news article argues that the newly dedicated Puerto Rico temple is an answer to divine prophecy. Now, if you think back to last year with the Cape Verde Africa temple, uh, which was dedicated last June by Neil Anderson, that was also another temple dedication in which the church news hinted that Elder Anderson controlled the rain that day. So in his dedicatory prayer, he said, please do not rain until we're done here. And then the rain started afterwards. So what? So, so between those two articles of the Puerto Rico miraculous, the days will get better during, you know, the, we're, we're in the depths of uh, just recovering from a massive hurricane with the Cape Verde temple. Both of these are miraculous temple dedication experiences. The church seems to be attempting to infuse miraculous elements into seemingly very routine temple dedications. It's attempting to add a layer of mysticism to the mundane. Sure. Now, if these, these these extremely small temple-related prophecies and miracles, if you can even call them that, they're a far, far cry from what happened in the Kirtland Temple dedication in uh, 1836. You remember what happened there? What I mean, what happened in the temple dedication in Kirtland in 1836? Um, well, it was like a psychedelic trip of some kind. Is that what it was? Rushing of the rushing of that. There was angels on top of it. People speaking in prophecy. People speaking in tongues. It was reported throughout the entire neighborhood. Hundreds of people were saying they saw angels walking on top of the temples. It was a miraculous manifestation that was truly remarkable. Now what we get is days will be better for Puerto Rico after a hurricane and during a temple dedication. It's not going to rain until we're done with a prayer. So yep. it's just a big, con a pretty big contrast. Yeah. So, but, you know, magical thinking. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard to see the magic. I, I yeah, want the, to see... the the definition of magic is changing for sure. It's very small magic. So the, the senior church leaders, including Russell M. Nelson, they went to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. And what did they do to respond to one of the worst natural disasters to strike this hemisphere in our lifetimes? Well, they announced a temple. And, and also think about what was Russell M. Nelson's personal response to seeing the aftermath of one of the greatest uh, calamities of the pandemic. So we had the calamity of Maria, which is probably one of the greatest cataclysmic events in the Western Hemisphere during my lifetime. The only other big a big event that happened in my lifetime is the pandemic. And what was Russell M. Nelson's personal response to the pandemic? Uh, let's fast and pray for two days. Right. Let's fast and pray yeah. for two days. And of course, the church had the ability to really affect Puerto Rico and the church had the ability to really help the world in the pandemic. And the responses was, um, I don't know, the church has deep pockets, but very short arms. We'll just put it that way, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> So I mean, even well, today, Puerto Rico, it's one of the most impoverished places in the United States, even though it's uh, technically not a state and merely a territory. Now, President Monson, he didn't go to, President Monson was the prophet when Hurricane Maria struck. And well, why do you suppose that he didn't go to Maria? <laughs> uh, I don't know that he had the faculties. No, he, he, you know, he was in the final stages of dementia. So whenever the prophet gets too old, the Lord has to take a big time out on important revelations, on ministering, on global leadership. And these timeouts, they can last for years in some cases, like President Benson lasted like 10 years. Because remember, the prophet is the only man on earth with the power and authority to speak on behalf of God regarding certain things. He's the only one who has the keys. So the Lord is really at the mercy of his geriatric servants. Yeah, it's true. And I don't know if you've heard this. We talk a lot about living prophets. I think the reality is there's a lot of dying prophets. That's true. So, you know, what, what's ironic to me here is that Latter-day Saints in Puerto Rico, they're not going to have the ability to follow Russell M. Nelson's 2018 prophetic example on the Isle of Enchantment. That is, they're going to be able to drive right past the suffering people. And remember, Puerto Rico is still a very, very impoverished place. They're going to be able to drive right past them who are in dire need of real help today in order to serve the interests of the dead, who we know will never, ever get close to bridging the gap on. So, you know, what do the citizens of Puerto Rico need more? Do they need working infrastructure, microloans, clean water, access to medical care, job opportunities, health, you know, healthy sanitation, full statehood? Or do they need a convenient temple for just the 4,000 faithful Mormons for a proxy, a temple proxy work? Which, what, what do they need more? Uh, a lot of people died in that hurricane. We really got to help those people. Uh, let's help them in the millennium. Okay, let's help them there. Yeah. Yeah, You know, whenever I come across these difficult questions, Evan, I also also always ask myself, what would Donnie and Marie Osmond do? And then, yeah, I just... they would withhold their inheritance. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bad joke to end on. But this does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup poll of the week. Could you now, unfortunately, Evan just had a power outage. So I'm gonna have to finish up the last little bit of this uh, episode by myself. But that does bring us to our Mormon News Roundup poll of the week. How should the LDS Church have reacted to Hurricane Maria's aftermath in Puerto Rico in 2018? Is it number one? Exactly like it did. Announce and build a $10 million beautiful new temple. Or is it number two? Just like the two-time COVID fast with fasting and prayer. Or number three? With the same urgency it reacted to... Uh, or is it number three? With the same urgency it reacted to California's Proposition 8 in 2018. All hands on deck. Or is it number four? By making hundreds of millions of dollars in relief aid immediately available from Enzyme Peak to the island's citizens. Or is it number five? by using priesthood power to heal those affected. If you come on over to Anchor, you can take our Mormon News Roundup poll of the week. 
Now, Evan, thank you so much for um, being with me on the podcast. I'm sorry that your power went out for this last little bit, but uh, thanks so much for being here. We do have some huge guests and shows coming up in the near future. Number one, we have Chino Blanco, the moderator of our Mormon and our ex-Mormon Reddits on next week. We have Landon Brophy from the Good Book Club on on February 5th. Uh, we have the Alternative Mormon on for February 12th. And folks, you don't want to miss this. Circle this on your calendar. We have the Midnight Mormons coming on February 19th. Now, shout out to Weird Alma for this episode's music. And thanks so much for ruminating with Evan and myself on the great and spacious beehive. And remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. A big thank you to our sponsor, Signature Books, for supporting us here at the Mormon News Roundup. Please uh, go over to SignatureBooks.com and check out some of the latest publications that they have. Uh, currently, they have things like Lighthouse, uh, the Gerald and Sandra Tanner story uh, by Ronald V. Huggins, one of the uh, stories about the uh, two most famous critics of Mormonism today. We've also got uh, the story of Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, a biography, a uh, suffragist, senator, and plural wife. Uh, that one is by Constance um, Lieber. And then we've also got uh, a really good one here called DNA Mormon by Je Benjamin E. Park. Uh, so for all of your interest in uh, Mormon studies and research, go over to SignatureBooks.com and support our sponsor. Thank you.